Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years, and one of my favorite research tools is Truthfinder. It's online, and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give Truthfinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing, but you got to click the link and enter Evil 10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time. Hey everybody, welcome to Profiling Evil Podcast. I think you're really going to enjoy today's episode. I'm talking with Gemma Hoskins. She is one of the stars of the Netflix uh, series on The Keepers, the death of a Catholic nun, Catherine Ann Sesnick. Gemma, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. Oh, heavens. I'm I'm thrilled. It was just so fun to visit with you over the last couple of weeks about Catherine, your experience with, with her, your experiences in the Netflix series. But most importantly, you know, uh, on our YouTube channel and in our podcast, we really talk about the importance of what we call public CSI, crowdsourced intelligence. And uh, you are the best example I have seen in a long time with, (laughs) along with your cohorts, you chose to step forward and try to investigate this horrendous murder that occurred so very long ago. You were a a high school student at uh, Keough High School in Baltimore, Maryland, and you met the most amazing uh, nun that I think I've ever had the chance of studying. Tell us a little bit about uh, being Gemma back in 1969 and uh, attending a Catholic school, all-girls school, and uh, and meeting uh, Sister Sesnick. Well, it was an amazing experience meeting her. I grew up in a Catholic family, so, <clears throat> excuse me, I was in Catholic school for 12 years. So I wore what we would call uniform for 12 years, um, which is kind of a double-edged sword. And I know we're going to talk about the Catholic church, but basically when I was a freshman at Keough, Sister Kathy was an English teacher. So I was in her English class and for two years, I participated in the drama club and she and her friend, Sister Russell, were the coaches for the drama club. So I had that experience with her as well. And it sounds really trite, but she really was Julie Andrews in person. <laughs> that is perfect, she was, actually. She was a she was a breath of fresh air in that school because she and Russell were twenty five and twenty six when when I knew them, and most of the other nuns were older and pretty typical of the nuns I grew up with in in grade school. But Kathy was very different, and everything was an experience with her. So when she would come in the classroom, she wasn't showing off, but she just sort of had this air about her. She'd just sweep across the front of the room and we were wrapped with attention. Um, We read a lot of interesting novels with her. We had just wonderful, um, she did a lot of musicals and I was fortunate enough to be part of that. So she is the reason I became a teacher. 
That's that's amazing, you know. And I, as I went back and studied uh, Catherine's life, I was really, um, I was really impressed. I mean, here's a girl who, who grows up in Pittsburgh. Uh, she's the oldest child in the family. Uh, her family comes from like Yugoslavia and Austria, I think, is kind of where the roots take them back. Kathy was internally and externally beautiful. She really was stunning. And people ask me if she has impacted my spiritual life. And I have to say no, because I never really thought of her as a nun. I thought of her as a person. And she could have been a lay teacher, which means she wasn't a sister. I just thought of her as this amazing person that I wanted to emulate. And we all felt that way. She had very high standards for us. And we we just rose to the occasion and asked for more because she was just so effervescent, so kind, so gentle, but certainly not a shrinking violet. She was pretty feisty. Tell me a little bit of what, what's it like um, to be in a Catholic school uh, in uh, a school that requires uniforms and all girl uh, school. What, what was that like for Gemma? Well, I wore a uniform all the way through grade school, so that was nothing new. The good part of that is that you never had to worry about what you were going to put on to go to school the next day because you just kept putting the same skirt on. I remember we actually had to, to iron. I don't even know what an iron is anymore. Iron our uniform blouses. That was like a big deal in my house. Um, going to an all-girls school was okay. Uh, for those of your listeners and viewers that read my book, you'll know that grade school was difficult for me because I was bullied, because I was very awkward. I was too tall. I was too plain. And it was difficult because the bullying often came from boys. And that was really painful for me. In fact, in eighth grade, it was so bad that I even thought about seeing if I could change schools. And that's that's all the story in the book. But anyway, so when I went to Keogh, we rode the bus with boys. You know, the school bus picked up the Keogh girls, the Mount St. Joe high school boys and the Cardinal Gibbons boys, because all three high schools were not far distant from each other. So we got to see the boys in the morning and on the way home. And some of them also participated in the uh, drama productions that Kathy put on. But I was very comfortable in that niche because I really wanted to find myself and, you know, just be comfortable without having competition, clothing and boyfriends, etc. So it's um, it's a routine, but it was one that we were all used to if we already had gone to Catholic grade school. Yeah, uh, that I, I'm so sorry to hear that. It's amazing the impact that bullying can have on individuals. Um, and, and oftentimes you end up putting your faith and your trust in adult leaders, which in, in some cases in, in Keogh was the worst thing that could have Correct. happened. But I wanted to just um, kind of step back and have you tell me a little more about uh, Sister Catherine. And folks, I'm speaking with Gemma Hoskins uh, of this really amazing Netflix series, The Keepers. And Gemma and her team went out and uh, fought for justice for Sister Catherine Sesnick, who was murdered in 1969. 
what drew you particularly to her? Was it her kindness? Was it her ability to just help you work through things? What was it about her? Well, I was not a student that was struggling with personal issues. I grew up in a family that in the 50s and 60s that was pretty functional. Nobody was hurting anybody. Nobody was drinking. Nobody was fighting. So I I guess I, I took all that for granted. And so my relationship was Kath, with Kathy was pretty much in class and practicing for our drama productions. And those Saturdays were so much fun. I can remember my dad, you know, bringing a bunch of us over in the morning and then coming back at five o'clock to, to pick everybody up from those rehearsals. Kathy was some sisters behind their habits and some of the habits were like really severe looking. They looked scary to me. And if you had to ask to use the bathroom in grade school when it wasn't time for the whole class to go, I, you, you could, like wanted to cry. So Kathy was, she treated us like adults. She treated us like colleagues. Now she was 26 and we were 17, but even when she left, we stayed friends with her and Sister Russell because they were kind. They were all of those things. Never mean. I never saw or heard her do one mean thing to anybody. And I think even in dealing with the girls who came to her, sharing that they were being sexually assaulted by Reverend Joseph Maskell, I, I do think she confronted him and I do think she would have been very strong about it. But I never heard her raise her voice. I never heard her yell at anybody. She just had this just beautiful aura around her that sort of emanated into the classroom. And I just fell in love with, I still have the copy, I know I have copies of every book we ever did with her. I've just bought them because, you know, I want Scarlet Letter. Who reads the Scarlet Letter with their Catholic girls in in a high school, right? Well, she did it. And um, it was just, I can't say enough about the experience of knowing her as a teacher and a person. And I know we idolize people that have died and, you know, they become icons, but she really deserves all that. And I've often thought in looking for justice for Kathy, perhaps her legacy will be that because of her, other people who have suffered from um, abuse may find uh, hope and justice for themselves. And isn't that amazing that she's already touched the whole world and we only knew her for five years. So, so let's, you, you intimated what, what was going on. Let's talk about the ugly side of high school and uh, Maskell uh, right. If you could, maybe without going into a lot of detail, paint a picture of what your schoolmates were facing, because I want to talk about the difference between some of the challenges those children were facing and your family dynamic, and maybe some lessons that could be learned from them. Sure. Well, Reverend Joseph Maskell was the school chaplain. He had an office on the first floor that was next to the chapel. And so a door was connected between his office and the chapel. He, first of all, none of us who were not involved in this, we had no idea what was going on, none. 
my sister was a couple years younger and she said once he came out, she was sitting on the loading dock with a with another friend smoking a cigarette and he came out and yelled at them. And that was the end of the, you know, the, the conversation. I never had any, any interactions. I just thought he was kind of this nerdy priest. And I've often said, this is an aside, but if somebody was going to play him in a movie, Kiefer Sutherland, when he does the um, survivor, he's in a, a series about, He's the survivor of a, an explosion. As the new president? Yes. And he would be perfect because he could look like that. So day by day, we walk that hall, and there's a one-inch door between everybody wholesome, happy, going to class in the hallway, and a true nightmare happening on the other side. So... There are some factors, I think, and you and I have talked about victimology that were already in place that allowed for that to happen. One of them was that as a Catholic school kid, your parents thought that nuns and priests walked on water and they put the fear of, of God in us. And I think that's the whole habit thing, you know, priests in black dresses and nuns in habits. We were afraid to do anything wrong because our parents said, if sister tells you or the priest tells you to do something, you do it. You don't ask questions because they're the closest thing to God. Well, I don't think any of that's true anymore. In fact, I have not practiced my faith for many years, but what happened was in that context on a regular basis, Joseph Maskell, the Dean Sister Judith Shalm, who's still living, but I'm going to use her name because I know this happened. The guidance counselor and the school nurse, Mrs. Stafford, they would meet on a regular basis. And here's what they would do. They would go through the list of girls who, number one, were having health problems. Number two, were having academic problems. Number three, were having emotional issues family problems. They would come to the priests or the counselor for help. And anybody else who was uh, had known drug or alcohol problems. So frankly, this gave Maskell his shopping list, which is disgusting, but that's exactly what it was. It was his list of possible prey. And he went after those girls. And unfettered ask access as the dean. Pretty, pretty yeah. much. And a lot of people, I don't know how he managed this, but he knew that he knew when every single girl's period was. Now, what does a priest do, want to do with that information? That's bizarre. So um, girls who came to him in confession, they were groomed. Um, he made them his special friends. He invited them to come into his office to smoke cigarettes and sit on uh, beanbag chairs. And, you know, girls have talked about this and nothing happened to them, but he sure was checking out everybody in that building. I've also talked to a woman who was apparently one year he had his own, quote, homeroom, which was about six students who would report to his office every morning. And one of them told me she would have to sit next to him on the floor. And he forced her while he was having homeroom to be 
um, masturbating him. And he threatened girls if they told anybody. Um, there were guns involved. He had a gun in his um, desk drawer. Girls were hypnotized. Girls were given drugs in a Coke. You know, who doesn't want to accept a Coke from somebody who's letting you sit in their office and smoke a cigarette, right? Hypnosis was used, but it was very planned. And it was quite a network because he was not the only one that was involved in the abuse. So once that started, once that started and he brought other men into the picture, he would be the savior. He'd stand at the door and very violent police officers, some well-known politicians, businessmen, they would enter through a fire door which was between on the outside of the building, which was between his office and the chapel. He would lock the doors to the chapel and he would, of course, lock his door. And the most bizarre orgy related things happened in the chapel and in his office. So for girls who were hypnotized or who um, were given drugs, they have worked at this all their lives now. We're talking over 50 years. And of course, some of them were not always successful. There were suicides. There's been drug addiction, alcoholism. Many of the women who were abused by him, who are women now, have had unsuccessful relationships, multiple marriages. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen to other people, but a seed was planted that they something was wrong with them if they didn't go along with him. And so him introducing them to drugs and alcohol, we believe that he used some MK ultra uh, mind control experiments to get them to do what he wanted. So if there were other people in the mix, they, and he's standing at the door, then there's a name for this. I forget what the syndrome is, but he becomes the person that can save them. So there's a very strange relationship between abusers and those they abuse. And I'll tell you, having having studied and investigated sexual crimes um, most of my career, uh, many of the things you say, as different as they always seem to be to the victim of that particular incident. They all seem to be so similar in nature, the the methodology to control the victim, to psychologically impact the, the victim so that they right. don't feel comfortable in sharing the, the feelings of guilt that they have. Gemma, along the way, Sesnick figures out what's going on and the children start exposing the abuses that they experience. Tell me about that time that you, you learned later in life after your investigation. Right. Well, I have three personal friends who uh, that I know of, and two of them have talked about going to her um, in 68 and spring of 69. And they did not know where to turn. And because she was so tuned in to other people's, she had so much empathy and compassion, she knew something was wrong. And this is all in the series, but she asked Jean Wainer, who was, was Jane Doe, 
uh, something was going on and, you know, Jean expressed that it was and sister saw her coming out of his office and being upset. And then there were two other women who came forward. And one of them is the young young person with her boyfriend who went to see Kathy the night before she disappeared. And she's chosen to stay anonymous. And I'll be honest with you, I've never said her name out loud ever. And I know who she is, but I will not do that to her. That's her choice. The other one in the series was Kathy Hoback, and she actually lives near me and we're really good friends. And she shared with Kathy what was happening. So knowing Kathy, I would bet my retirement that she would do the right thing. And when she decided to leave in the, leave Keo in the spring of 69, my feeling was that she and Sister Russell, who were, to, you know, they were working together on shows and whatever, that they left because they were not able to do anything. And I think they were in danger. And then we learned that Kathy certainly was in danger. I believe they were collateral damage. And I think the night before Kathy disappeared, I know I'm getting off track, but, but we, we would come to this anyway. I think that um, I think that they threatened both nuns, Joseph Maskell and uh, the other priest who was the head of the religious studies at the school. Neil Magnus went to Kathy's apartment the day before she disappeared and a young woman and her boyfriend were there and she had also been abused by him. So he and his partner, they didn't burst in, but they opened the door and walked in. And I've asked the anonymous woman, she said, Maskell was furious and Magnus was confused. So my gut tells me that the nuns were threatened that night. And I think it all came to fruition the next day when Kathy disappeared on a shopping trip. They were collateral damage, Mike. They had to be gotten rid of. Because I do believe yeah. that they reported to the church and to their supervisors. Well, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, that's I mean, that's amazing because now amazing. we're talking yep. no, November 7th, 1969. Yes. Uh, Correct. Kathy leaves work, goes to a bank and cashes her check. Uh, she, from, from tracing her, of course, I love mapping. So I like to trace the routes that people travel and see what the similarities are. And, uh, she goes from there to a bakery and picks up some items. So she clearly has, uh, plans of some sort. Uh, but then she goes and she buys a gift for a family member. And, and I kind of chosen not well, to get too particular about that, but maybe it is worth talking about. Um, it is worth talking about because what you're sharing with me and what was presented in the keepers, you have to remember that came out four years ago. We have learned that her path, her journey was different than that. And I had a friend who lives there. She actually drove the correct um, trip. And we tried to see if she could do all of those errands and get back by the time that people believe she came back. So what I can share with you, and you'll appreciate this if you're into mapping, is that she came home from school. She and Russell had dinner and a young woman stopped by 
to drop something off. Russell is who? Russell is Sister Kathy's roommate, who also yeah. was a nun at Keogh. Yeah, it's important to point she, out because Russell sounds like a man's name. I know it was um, it was her uh, a name from her family. It's Sister Helen. I'll call her Sister Helen Russell Phillips. Okay, but we just knew her as Russ. And after they left the, the school, we would go over and visit them. And it was funny, but they said, just call us Kathy and Russ. They were just the coolest people and nothing inappropriate. I mean, it wasn't unusual to visit with your teachers in those days. I actually had kids who, when I was teaching grade school, whose parents would bring them over and, you know, we'd visit. But anyway, um, so they ate dinner. She went out at about 730. And the path she took was not to the Edmondson Village Shopping Center. The path she took was to an area in Baltimore County called Catonsville. And she went to the bank in Catonsville, not at the Edmondson Village Shopping Center. So we've traced that route. She would have had, there was no drive-through banking and there was no parking lot. So she would have had to park on the street walk into the bank, cash the check, come back out, get back in her car. From there, she did drive to the old Edmondson Village Shopping Center. And we know that because a Keogh student was there with her aunt and they saw her in the parking lot and spoke to her in the parking lot of a department store. Across the street from the Edmondson Village Shopping Center, is where Kathy ultimately, the bakery was inside the door of a store called the Heck Company. So she bought the bakery goods inside the Heck Company, got in her car, went, headed home. We have learned that she did not. Let's clarify. So the the bakery is in the same Edmondson Village shopping center as the jewelry store? Okay. She did not go to a jewelry store. She did not buy that necklace. Okay. If, okay, the necklace is irrelevant at this point because we have found since then that it wasn't specially made for anybody. Those were frequently bought very inexpensively for birthstone gifts. Some of the women at Keogh said their boyfriends or their parents gave them the same necklace with their birthstone in it. Now, there was no receipt in the car. There's no gift in the car. But we know that uh, suspected perpetrator Edgar Davidson, who was in the Keepers, gave that necklace to his wife. And she thought it was very odd because it was not her birthstone. We have learned since then. So the necklace has been in police custody all this time, Baltimore County Police. The young woman, that's where it is right now. The young woman who had the necklace was Edgar's niece. She gave it to the Sesnick family and they took it home. And for some reason that I am not aware of, the police and that family have determined that that is not a gift that Kathy bought. The necklace, the police think that Edgar was a petty thief and most likely stole it from somebody off, you know, on the street. So we do know 
And this is interesting because I have the missing person report because the missing person part of the case was closed once Kathy's body was found. So using a FOIA Freedom of Information Act request, I was able to get the whole missing person report. And the missing person report says that there was no gift in the car. There was no receipt. Um, but it does say, and the pages are missing, Mike. We, we did hear from the family that the police told them that Kathy re, uh, inquired about how to set up a bridal registry. Now, Edmonton Village Shopping Center is a strip of old time, not old time now, but it's very old shopping center stores. It's not an inside mall. Across the highway from that was a huge department store, the Heck Company. And that's where Kathy went to find out about the bridal registry, to find out about, you know, to buy the baked goods. And that's where she returned home from. So the map is different than what was shown in the keepers because the bank was not in the shopping center. And we think that all of this could have happened within an hour. It's really tight, but we've tried it and just estimated how much time she would have spent at each place. So we think it's possible because she was seen in her car back in her parking space around 8.30. So all that would have had to happen in an hour. Interesting. So now she, um, Kathy had a priest who had not taken his vows that she was very close to. Correct. Now the investigator in me wants to know who she was thinking of a bridal registry for. Oh, yes, for her sister. I'm sorry. In the series, we know that her sister, she told uh, a girl at her at the public high school where she was teaching Western high school that afternoon, she was excited because she was going to buy an engagement present for her sister. So the fact that she inquired about a bridal registry, nuns wouldn't know about a bridal registry and that she spoke to a salesperson. And that happens to be one of the pages that's missing from the missing person report. And I request. Oh, interesting. And because wasn't the priest, hoping that perhaps they could leave um, the official ministry and get married? Jerry Koob was a Jesuit seminarian, and part of his training was to have the experience of teaching in a Catholic high school, so almost like a student teacher. So the first year that Keo was open, uh, Kube was assigned there to teach religion. And he went to Kathy and he said they had met. Okay. They had, they were friends. They had met at a conference like the year before that. Okay. And again, Kathy is a nun and he's a Jesuit seminarian. So they were friends. Um, he came to Keogh and he said, I have no idea how to teach these girls. And Kathy invited him to come in and watch her teach. And he did. 
And that would have been like the best experience for somebody who didn't know how to teach was to watch her because she used what's called the Socratic method where you, she became part of the conversation. She wasn't directing it and she would ask probing questions and for us to repeat what we thought we heard someone else say. It was very much the way teachers teach now. And I adopted all of it for my teaching. But they knew each other from Keogh and from this conference, and they became very close friends. Now, there's a lot of supposition. People like things to be sensational. They don't like to watch boring. They don't want to, they want to sometimes think the worst of people. I don't know exactly what their relationship was, because I frankly think that he cared a lot more about her than she did about him. And I believe that I know that he asked her to marry him and she said no. And then a couple of years later, he asked her again and she still said no. She told everybody, she sent a letter to everybody saying that they were leaving the school as a social experiment. Now, the school approved it, but what's called the mother house, which is the supervisory um, school sisters of Notre Dame convent, which is where Kathy and sister Russell uh, went to learn to become nuns. They did not approve it, but the women did it anyway. And they were given a deadline. They were told they had to make a decision by the end of 1969 as to whether or not they would be definitely leaving the convent completely or returning to Keogh. So I know that he was aware of that, Kub, and he's talked about that, that she had this decision she had to make by the end of the year. Catherine disappears that night. Yes. And her car is found mysteriously parked across the street, uh, oddly on the corner, not characteristic of her driving. Right. It's covered with mud. The buns are still in it that she purchased at the bakery. Mm -hmm. Right. And the days and weeks grind by. Um, were you as students aware that she had disappeared during this time? And then if you could just share, um, about your dear friend being taken to the site where Catherine was laying. Right. Yes. We were aware that Kathy had disappeared. Um, we had no idea what was going on. The, um, the car, the way it was found, again, was typically not the way she would have parked it. But I can also tell you that the next morning, uh, when it was, you know, the night that it was found, it was not processed at the scene. And I've learned a lot about how officers process cars. This car was put on a tow truck for a local towing company, not the police department, with the rear end up. So it was towed, dragging the car with the nose down and the rear up. It was not processed until they took it to the Southwest Baltimore City Auto Bay at the police department. So all the evidence got shifted around. There's nothing reliable about the processing of the car. And pictures of that were available in the keepers and all the pictures 
they're not efficient because the car was processed after it was towed, which makes no sense. And I've talked to a Baltimore County homicide officer who said, if the weather is bad, the car is wrapped in plastic inside and out so that nothing moves and it's put on a flatbed truck, not towed nose up or down so that nothing gets jarred. Everything shifted around. So to me, that was a wasted processing of that car. Um, I mean, I think it's ridiculous that we're expected to believe that no pictures at the scene of the car. All the pictures are in that auto bay. Yeah, you know, it's unfortunate, Gemma, in defense of police, too. Uh, people go missing all the time, hundreds and hundreds of thousands per right. year. And if if every case was treated like a homicide and protected the way that we would have hoped that that would have been protected, there would be no police officers to answer calls for years at a time because they'd be so busy doing things that until you learn more, just seem like a missing person case or an abandoned vehicle or, you know, so many other things. And so... Um, but that's really, really frustrating. When Kathy disappeared, she was living inside the city-county line. They lived right on it. When she was found, she was found in Baltimore County. So two jurisdictions were involved. If you look at the picture of the neighborhood, the Saturday after she disappeared, I have counted 30 police cars. Now, why did 30 police cars show up for a 26-year-old missing woman. The fact that she was a nun is kind of inconsequential at that point, but we also know that a large number of police officers were involved in the abuse inside the building at Keogh. My feeling is that they all showed up to see what was going on. I, I, I know what you're saying about a missing person report, is not the same as a homicide. But even when she was found, Mike, none of the neighbors were questioned. However, all the neighbors on the other side of the street where the car was parked, I have probably six or seven houses marked of people who were questioned because and who saw the car parked that way as early as 1030 the night before. So I'm not buying what they're selling. I think they knew what was going on and we're trying to cover it up. So um, take me to two months later when, um, right. when Jean is taken out uh, and what the circumstances were around that. Actually, that did not happen two months later. It happened during the two weeks. Two days weeks. later or something. Yeah. Yeah. During the couple weeks following Kathy's disappearance. And in the series, it talks about um, her seeing maggots on Kathy. That was possible because from November 7th, almost until Thanksgiving of that year, it was very warm. And I've actually done research on the life cycle of a magnet, which is of a maggot, which is really weird. But um, and so several days after Catherine disappears, Jean finds herself in some really interesting circumstances. Mm -hmm. Can you walk through what happened there? Sure. Well, before Kathy left Keogh, she promised Jean she would help her. 
Jean was upset with Kathy because in the fall she came back to school and Kathy was gone. And she said the abuse got worse because Maskell said to her, I hear you've been saying bad things about me. So he came to her and told her that he knew where Kathy was. This was like a week and a half after Kathy disappeared. And Jean was like, oh, my gosh, take me to her. She's alive. So he drives her to an area. And she has since told me exactly where that was, but she has not made that public. She has actually been back there and identified the spot and left some flowers and and a picture. Um, It's not far from where Kathy was found, but it's not in the same spot. So Maskell drove her to this area and she sees Kathy's body on the ground and it's covered with live maggots. And she remembers like begging him to help her get the maggots off Kathy's face. And, and he leaned down and he said, now you see what happens to people who say bad things about me. So once Kathy was murdered, that was a red flag to every other faculty member, because I believe they all knew what was going on. In fact, some participated, I mean, literally participated, including a couple nuns and some male teachers in the building. So everybody was afraid and nobody opened their mouth and they won't talk to me. I talked to one, I got of all the faculty members in my yearbook, I was able to locate most of them. They won't talk to me. One did. And he said, we had no idea what was going on. It was the sixties. We were all really naive. So, um, I think that Jean was not the only girl who was taken to see Kathy's body. I believe there was at least one other and she has kind of disappeared and has chosen to live her life somewhere else. Um, So when I think what happened was Kathy was moved because I think Maskell panicked and thought she could tell somebody where this is and they could come back here and find this body. So I think he had his, his henchmen or his thugs move her to where the, the place where she was found. Well, and, and she eventually is recovered, um, right. but many, many years pass, and mm-hmm. you all start to put more and more pressure on not only the, the church officials, but law enforcement, and you start to get validation that that things that Jean was having remember uh, memories of were validated by other people who experienced Correct. the same thing that um, people, including um, a man who came forward, were victimized by this same mm-hmm. individual. Mm-hmm. And all of that's documented in the show, and we want people to go yes. back and watch the show. But I thought it was so pivotal for Gene when the medical examiner finally admitted mm-hmm. that the possibility of maggots on this body, if she had seen a body in November, was Correct. absolutely uh, possible. What, what was and, that experience like for her? Do you remember? Yes, I do. Um, first of all, when Kathy was found, there was no evidence of maggots living or dead, just at first sight. 
when the autopsy was done, and I have a copy of it, so I've read this so many times that Kathy's family gave me a copy. I did not, I won't publish it. I won't show it to anybody. It's gotten out there, but it wasn't because of me. There were many maggots in her trachea and her esophagus because maggots burrow deeper when it begins to get cold. So they would have been evident on her face when Jean saw her. And then as the weather began to get cold, this is very hard for me to talk about. I have to like distance myself from the fact that this was my teacher. Um, They burrowed deeper into her body. And that's what the medical examiner addresses in the autopsy. Interestingly enough, James Scannell, who was the captain on duty that day, and who is also in the series, he's dead now, he passed away two years ago, out of the blue, when our director was interviewing him, he said, I mean, there were no maggots or anything, and he wasn't asked about that. So um, I have questions about his involvement, and we also have learned that he abused some girls at Keogh also. So a lot of people were involved in this. I think it was a huge network. I think it was networks within networks. Like if you can picture Venn diagrams, we had thugs, we had politicians, we had business people, we had um, police officers, other priests, nuns, all of this was going on and they all took care of each other. So, um, yeah, when, you know, when Jean shared that about the maggots, it all made sense. So who's going to question Werner Spitz? I mean, like the fact that he was the medical examiner here in Maryland is pretty amazing itself. And, you know, I believe that she's credible and I believe everything she has shared. I don't know how she survived everything. I really don't. Uh, Gemma, it's now a few years since the keepers has been out and you continue to uh, push for more and more information for continued investigation. This has become your life's work. It has. And I'll plug my book. The book is called keeping on. I'm not stupid. It's a good title, right? Keeping on. And, um, I have another one coming out after this is all over called Keeping It Real with all the backstories. But anyway, it's why I think I was born. And I don't mean to sound trite or like, oh, I found my purpose in life. But about two years ago, after the Keepers came out, I was in this situation where I thought the Pope knows who I am. The president knows who Gemma Hoskins is. This is really surreal. And so I started to think about any differences I had made for people who had been abused or who were looking for justice for Kathy. And I really feel like that's what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm 68. And this last quarter of my life, it's a very rich and interesting tapestry of um, lies, deception, but also wonderful people who have supported me and who are helping me like you, I'm going to pick your brain. So I think it's really my purpose in being here. And that kind of 
blows my mind because how many people really know why they're here? And we look for that all our lives. And, um, you know, I, I look towards my late husband and my mom and Kathy, people that have passed on already, and I get their energy. And I'm not talking about like a medium, but I just really feel like this is the right thing for me to do. And I'm facing some some pretty big, you know, that David and Goliath thing. The church doesn't want anything to do with me, and they, they're still covering up. Um there is a criminal investigation going on in Maryland, and hopefully the attorney general will convene a grand jury into clergy abuse. And I believe I have probably sent, I'm going to guess, 30 individuals to that investigator because they have information and people don't know what to do with it. So, I, I Mike, I some part of every day, I'm in, like today with you and... I have probably 50 emails and messages I need to get to from people that are looking for help or mm-hmm. they want to know how they can get a book or um, that, you know, we're related to somebody. And I, I follow every single lead. I have been the one who was lucky enough to find the older people who lived at the carriage house apartments I get on the phone, I call them up. They're lovely people. And they've all said that even when Kathy was found, nobody questioned them. You know, the hunter that found Kathy has never been questioned since the day he found her ever. He did a podcast with us and he said, I wish they would call me. So we gave his contact information to the police. They never got back to him. But we found him and it took a while to find him. And he gave us the whole story. It was fascinating. I'll, I'll send you that if you want to listen to it. He's never, ever since that day, he said he went into the station for a couple hours. He was there when they, when they arrived. He was there when they took her away and told us where he called from, the whole story. But Nobody has talked to him now. What kind of what kind of active case is this? Well, send that? us send us the link for that because we'll attach it below with this podcast so that awesome. people have the opportunity to get more right. information. And again, folks, go watch the Netflix series. Where can we buy your book, Gemma? You can buy my book on Amazon. It's also actually available in some libraries and independent bookstores. But the best place to look is Amazon because. It's available in a paperback for about 16 or 17 bucks. It's available as an ebook. And I also went to a recording studio all of last summer and did my own narration for the audible version. So people get to listen to this Balmer accent, Balmer gem for eight hours if they want to listen, listen to the audible version. But I couldn't imagine another narrator d- telling my story. So. No. Well, and folks, you don't want to miss this. Please make sure you check out Gemma's book. Uh, You can read about her uh, by just going out onto the World Wide Web and you'll find all kinds of articles about the I have a website. I have a website. And the website is? GemmaHoskins.com. And so make sure you go to Gemma's website where you can actually leave her a message if you'd like. And please. Uh, and please go to the Netflix series and watch that seven-part series. It is phenomenal. And uh, Gemma, 
I, I just want to say in closing that what you have done is you've breathed new life into a cold case. And and uh, Catherine's family, you and your uh, schoolmates will forever know, regardless of what the outcome may be, that you did everything that you could possibly do to shed light on Catherine's death. But I want to leave you with just a thought that may be even bigger than Catherine's death, knowing the kind of goodness that she brought into this world, is that perhaps through these efforts, there are more checks and balances in the the system itself that children can't be put into that position as easily as they were in 1969. And because of that, you can rest knowing that many children are being spared victimization because of those efforts and forcing ugly darkness into light. So from all of us at Profiling Evil, I cannot thank you enough uh, and know that uh, you have a committed friend in me whenever you have questions that would be happy to explore those further with you. Thank you so much. And if you don't mind, I'm going to look right in this camera and say one thing to your viewers, and that is there's help out there for you if you have been abused, if you were abused as a child. There's a lot of resources. Please get some help. Please come forward. If you have any information about Sister Kathy or about the other young woman who was murdered a few days later, Joyce Malecki, or anything at all about any clergy abuse, please, you can get in touch with me or Mike, and we will send you in the right direction. This is something that we have, we have to take care of each other, and we have to take care of our children. And we need, as Mike said, to be doing that as a world community. Thanks, Gemma. I, I hope you have a great day, and thank you, everyone. Thank you. Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years, and one of my favorite research tools is Truthfinder. It's online, and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give Truthfinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing, but you got to click the link and enter Evil 10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time.